chapter 1. You're probably getting tired of hearing my voice, and this is God's gift to you. Um, Seems like I've been up here a lot lately. Galatians chapter 1. Tonight, we will take the first five verses, Lord willing. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The book of Galatians is probably the first of the letters that were penned by the Apostle Paul. That is fitting because it is written to the first group of churches that were started by the Apostle Paul. Now, unlike the letters to Philippians or Ephesians or Colossians or Thessalonians, which were all letters written to a particular church in a particular city, the letter that was written to the Galatians was not written to one church individually, but rather a whole group of churches that were started most likely on Paul's first missionary journey. The book of Acts chapter 13 and 14 highlight that mission trip for us. And Paul started at least four churches during that season of his his travels. The church in Antioch, the church in Iconium, the church in Derbe, and the church in Lystra. Those were all churches that were birthed by Paul during that first missionary journey. And they were all in the region of Galatia. Galatia was not a city like the other ones were, but rather it was a region. It would be like saying Paul unto the tri-state area to the churches. You know, it was something that was encompassing not just one in particular church, but it was written to a group of churches. Now, not only does Acts chapter 13 and 14 highlight the birth of those churches, but it also lends us a little bit of insight into why Paul was writing this letter and what the problem was that was affecting that group of churches in the Galatian region. Unlike the other epistles of Paul, this letter has a sense of urgency to it. He he doesn't have a long introduction. He doesn't talk much about how or what he's doing like he does in the other epistles. He doesn't offer any kind of a a prayer for them or, or, or anything, but he just seems to get right to business here in this Galatian letter. There was something on his mind, something in his heart, a message that he needed to portray to these churches, and it was burning within him, and you can feel it as you read through this letter and begin to understand what it was that Paul was so passionate about as he wrote this letter. The church of Jesus Christ, the the whole thing, not just Galatians, but the church, the people of God that make up the church of God, started in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. 
You recall that Jesus had told Peter, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. It was something that had not yet started when Christ walked upon the earth. And just before he ascended for the final time, he gave this promise to the disciples that were there in Jerusalem. He said, tarry in Jerusalem, he said, because you will receive power After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the day of Pentecost came, and the Spirit of God was poured out upon that original group of disciples there. And a revival began in the city of Jerusalem as the church came into existence. And the work in Jerusalem was fruitful and thriving, and it began to spread out and spill over into the region of Judea. And as Judea began to bring forth fruit and abound with disciples, it spread into the outer regions of Samaria or the outer areas of the nation of Israel. So from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then from Samaria, it began and primarily through the ministry of the Apostle Paul to go out unto the ends of the earth, the regions that were beyond the borders of Israel, the spreading of the gospel. Now the area that is most immediately outside of Samaria, if you would, to the northwest of the borders of Israel is the region of Galatia. And that is where Paul's first missionary journey was centered and the churches were birthed there in that region. These churches, which is today the area that we would call Turkey, you know, on on your map, that region of Galatia, were the first Gentile churches. And they were the closest in proximity of, you know, other Gentile regions to Jerusalem. Now, the problem with that is that the Jews had a natural, deep, ingrained hatred for the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles didn't mix. The Jews believed that the Gentiles were created for nothing but to keep hell hot. That God made Gentiles as fuel to stoke the flames of hell. Now, the Apostle Paul had a very definite and very specific calling from God to reach the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the fact that the Gentiles were coming to Christ and coming to Christ in large numbers rubbed against the Jews that were in Jerusalem. Many of them did not accept Paul's ministry and many of them did not accept Paul's message, which was the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul being the apostle of grace, the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, many of the Jews that were in Jerusalem, though they embraced Jesus, they could not find themselves or bring themselves to relinquish the laws and the traditions and the customs of Judaism. And their affirmation was that if a Gentile wanted to come into the fellowship, if a Gentile wanted to get saved, then that Gentile must first become a Jew legally. They must have the rite of circumcision performed upon them. 
They must agree to submit to the laws and the customs of Moses and the Levitical order. That those things were required if a Gentile wanted to become a Christian, they first had to convert to Judaism. Paul, on the other hand, contended that salvation was a work of grace completely. That it was accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. That salvation is 100% complete by faith in Jesus Christ, by simply believing in what he did and receiving him as Lord of your life. And that it did not require the right of circumcision nor submission to the laws of Moses and the Levitical customs. And so you can see how there was a sharp contention between the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his message and the Jews that were in Jerusalem, even the Christian Jews that were there in that time. Now, Paul was very successful in his missionary endeavors. We know that as you read the book of Acts and hear what he wrote to these churches and understand the history of what's taken place biblically. Paul was extremely fruitful in his ministry for the Lord. And this was unacceptable to the Jews. They couldn't handle that, whether it was because of envy or whether it was religious zeal or a combination of both, that they just couldn't accept what was taking place through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so their recourse, their response to what was taking place in these Gentile regions was to follow Paul from city to city, from region to region, and to, after he would depart, go into the churches And say, now wait a minute, what did Paul tell you about your salvation? About the, you know, coming to faith in Christ and becoming a Christian? And they would say, oh, well, he taught us that Jesus Christ, the Savior, that his blood was poured out and that by faith in him, we can receive grace and be saved by faith in his name. And these Jews, they were called Judaizers, would come in and they'd say, now wait a minute, not so fast. You really think that you can just believe? You can just accept something that you had nothing to do with and that you can be brought into the fold of God? Don't you understand the history? Haven't you read the Old Testament scriptures? Don't you understand what a Jew had to go through in keeping the law and going through circumcision and offering these sacrifices? And you think that now you can just come in And because you believe in Jesus Christ dying and spilling his blood, that now all of a sudden you can bypass all of that and just be saved? Not so fast. And these Judaizers were very effective in their subverting of these Gentile churches. The natural tendency of human nature, and we all understand this, is that if you want something, you've got to earn it. And so because of the convincing nature of their message and also the human nature within us that understands that there are certain kind of unwritten laws of working and receiving, the Christians in the regions of Galatia were being affected by the Judaizers and were beginning to mix. Now listen, they were mixing salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ with salvation that comes by works and adherence to laws and customs. They were mixing these two things. It's a combination of both the grace of God and 
works of keeping the law and doing things that, you know, uh, God would have us to do and pleasing God by our actions and by our works and our sacrifice and our sacraments and our commitments. And to Paul, this was an invalid gospel that what these Judaizers were doing is that they were polluting the purity and the potency of the message of grace. And so for Paul, this was a serious problem. And so the letter of Paul to the Galatians was written in response to the effect that the Judaizers were having upon the Gentile or Galatian believers. They had introduced a substitution for true spirituality, legalism. And Paul was writing to undo the problems that they had done. Now, during the 4th century A.D., when the Roman Catholic Church kind of became the official state religion of the Roman Empire. Many of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith were somewhat eroded. And some of them were corrupted and others were completely eliminated. And among them was this gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. And the Catholic Church historically has been known to teach and embrace somewhat of a works-based salvation. That it's dependent upon your keeping of the sacraments and making and keeping obligations and reparations and confessions and penance and, you know, all of the things. Many of us, I was brought up Catholic, you know, I was steeped in these things from the time that I was able to know who my mother was, you know. And this creed of Roman Catholicism practically dominated Christendom for nearly a thousand years without any contention at all. Until in the early 1500s, there was a young priest by the name of Martin Luther who came into a personal crisis in his pursuit to please God. And one of his biographers speaks of the effect that the book of Galatians had on him. And I want you to just listen to this. It says, young brother Martin fully dedicated himself to monastic life. The effort to do good works to please God and to serve others through prayer for their souls. Yet peace with God escaped him. He devoted himself to fasts, flagellations, long hours in prayer and pilgrimages, and constant confession. The more he tried to do for God, it seemed the more aware he became of his sinfulness. Johann von Staupitz, Luther's superior, concluded the young man needed more work to distract him from pondering himself. He ordered the monk to pursue an academic career. In 1507, Luther was ordained to the priesthood. In 1508, he began teaching theology at the University of Wittenberg. Luther earned his bachelor's degree in biblical studies on March 9, 1508, and a bachelor's degree in sentences by Peter Lombard, the main textbook of theology in the Middle Ages, in 1509. On October 19, 1512, the University of Wittenberg conferred upon Martin Luther the degree of Doctor of Theology. The demands of study for academic degrees and preparation for delivering lectures drove Martin Luther to study the Scriptures in depth. Luther immersed himself in the teachings of the Scripture and the early church. Slowly, terms like penance and righteousness took on new meaning. 
the controversy that broke loose with loose with the publication of his 95 theses placed even more pressure on the reformer to study the bible this study convinced him that the church had lost sight of several central truths to luther the most important of these was the doctrine that brought him peace with god concerning paul's letter to the galatians luther said the epistle to Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. That was the name of his wife. With joy, Luther now believed and taught that salvation is a gift of God's grace, received by faith and trust in God's promise to forgive sins for the sake of Christ's death on the cross. This, he believed, was God's work from beginning to end. The book of Galatians had a large part to play in the dawning of the Protestant Reformation. One of the greatest works of Martin Luther's life and ministry after his conversion was his commentary on the Galatians. It's a world-famous commentary. It, it, the commentary that Luther wrote on the Galatians inspired the Wesleys to begin what became the Methodist Church. And, and it was a very different thing when it started than it is now. The revivals that broke forth, the power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the souls that were saved, all of that inspired by Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. John Bunyan, my favorite book, you know, The Pilgrim's Progress, his victory, his deliverance from that same dominating, dominating condemnation came as he read Martin Luther's commentary on the Galatians. And almost all of the fathers of the Reformation period were affected greatly, not by Martin Luther, but by Paul the Apostle's letter that he wrote to the Galatian church. John Wycliffe, John Knox, John Calvin, the Wesleys, all of them in their own testimony, in their own words, speak of the power that the book or the letter of the Galatians had upon their life and upon their ministry. All of them found freedom from the burden of the law, from the condemnation that comes from trying to please God by my efforts. They found victory over that as they came to an understanding of the truths that are revealed to us in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Part of what brings a person to a, a saving faith in Jesus Christ is an awareness of their inward sinful condition, coupled with, of course, an understanding that you have no power to change yourself. In fact, some would go so far as to argue that if you have not yet come to a place where you don't understand how exceedingly sinful and hopeless you are in that condition, then you're not saved. Because you don't need a Savior until you recognize how, you know, abased you really are, how sinful you really are deep inside. And part of a person's conversion, any person's conversion, is that awareness of just how in need of a Savior they are because they can't fix themselves, they can't save themselves. And for me, as a young Christian, I knew, personally, I had a very cognizant awareness that it was my sin that was separating me from God. That was the issue, is that I loved sin and that I couldn't get away from it and that God's countenance towards me was anger because of the sin condition that was alive within my soul. 
So when I got saved and came to Christ and received the salvation, the forgiveness that comes, I, I was overjoyed. You know, wow, you mean I'm forgiven? You mean all of my sin, everything I've ever done is gone, it's washed away? And, and there was this joy that flooded my heart as I understood. But with that joy, I also made a very large mistake that I think is common to most, if not all, Christians. And that is this, that I received that gift of Christ, but I didn't see it properly. That what I saw when I received this gift of Christ is that I was being given a second chance. Oh, I'm being given a second chance. And man, that was such a thrill. Wow, the slate is clean. Everything is gone. And I have a brand new life. Old things are washed away. Behold, all things become new. But here was my mistake is that I made up my mind that this time I was going to get it right. That was my error, see? And from that point, I began immediately to reform my behavior. There were many things that I stopped doing. I stopped drinking almost immediately. I stopped smoking pot. I don't know how it happened, but supernaturally, swear words, cuss words just stopped coming out of my mouth. It was almost effortless, but, but there were so many things. There were... Crowds that I stopped hanging around with, places I stopped trafficking, people I stopped interacting with. There was just a lot of things that I stopped doing at that point because I knew it was a defilement to me. And also there were many things I started doing. I started attending church regularly. I started giving myself to a study of the scriptures, to Bible study, and it was a delight to me. I started interacting and fellowshipping with other believers. I started doing spiritual things, speaking spiritual things, making changes to my lifestyle, talking scripture, and taking delight in sharing and church attendance and all of the rest. And all of that that happened, the things that I stopped doing and the things that I started doing, for all of that, I began to think or hope or maybe even expect that because of those changes that I had made in my life, now God is going to begin to bless me. That I have now found favor with God because I see the light and I've made the changes. I quickly surpassed many of the people that were in the fellowship that I was at in you know, personal holiness and lifestyle and even you know, the way I would talk and the things that I would talk about. I would take secret delight and comments people would make about wow you're making such good ground spiritually you're really growing in the faith and i think yes i am you know and and i i'm really you know i'm really going after it and i'm not going to screw this up but something began to happen because I, I i thought that god was impressed with me and pleased and i expected that his blessing would be upon my life but I began to notice that many of the other people in the church, people that I, I personally thought I was doing a lot better than them, they seemed to be experiencing the blessing of God in a much greater way than I was, in truth, honestly. I, I could put on the face. I could say the words, you know. But internally, I could sense that they had a deeper joy, a, a, a greater expression of life than what i was really experiencing internally i noticed that for many of them god was blessing them in in many different ways there were open doors things that were happening for them opportunities that were opening he was using them and i kind of felt like i was kind of on the sidelines and something began to happen within my heart 
began to think, well, now this isn't fair. I'm holier than them. I'm doing better than them. I mean, doesn't God see the effort that I'm putting forth? Doesn't God understand all of the, 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 the work, all of the study, all of the concentration on behavior that I'm putting into this whole Christian effort in my life? Why isn't he blessing me? Why aren't I experiencing the, the same depths of joy that these people that just seem to be carefree and going about their, their, their daily life? They're really, what's going on here? And then it happened. There was an occasion where I was out to dinner with a whole bunch of church leaders, worship leaders, elders, you know, even the pastor of another church, all people that they were not from my church, and I was out to dinner with them. And and as the waitress came and began to take the drink orders, all of them began to order, some of them, alcoholic beverages. And I thought, aren't these church leaders? Don't they know what the Bible says about those in spiritual leadership positions? I mean, and I began to get uncomfortable because this is just not what we do in our church. You know, if you're in spiritual leadership, then there's a standard. I mean, it's not legalism, but there's a standard, you see. And so I'm there and I'm starting to think to myself, well, should I say something? I mean, what what are they doing? What's going on here? You know, and so I was kind of quiet and I was just sitting there thinking about what to do. One of the brothers turned to me and he said, hey, Nick. He said, what's your thought on people in places of spiritual leadership drinking alcoholic beverages? And I thought, God, okay, this is it. You're opening the door, you know. And out it came, like a lion out of the cage. I think it's sin, I said. Eruption, you know. (laughs) All of a sudden, the conversation turned sharply. All eyes were bent upon me as I was now, you know, being given cue to explain exactly what it is that I meant. And, and I dug my feet in and I began to make every argument for culture and example and witness and testimony and alcoholism and, you know, First Timothy chapter whatever where it says if you're an elder, you're not to be given to wine, you know, and, and all of these different things. And boy, was that an eruption. Over the next couple of days, that conversation that dinner event resulted in a series of spiritual discussions i'll say discussions not arguments or disputations they were discussions you know about the behaviors the things that god expects of us what does god expect of his people what is acceptable what is unacceptable for the child of god for him to do in all of this and I don't know if it was the next day or a couple days later, I was having breakfast with one of these brothers and just a a, a very close friend, you know, a good friend. And we were discussing these things. And and he was arguing with me. You know, I had my feet planted in and and I wasn't going to budge. I wasn't going to move from that position. You know, I was sure I was settled in my mind, you know. And this brother who was on the same page with me, didn't, he was not one that, you know, whatever at that time, didn't, he wasn't one who gave himself to, to alcohol or whatever, but, but he began to just put forth the questions to me and say, why? Why would you say that it's sin? And one by one, he began to take apart my arguments. 
Well, you know what? It's a problem in our culture. Okay, it's a problem in our culture, but can you point it out scripturally? It was a problem in Jesus' culture. Okay, well, it's a bad example. Your your children are going to do what you do. Okay, yes. All right, fine. It's a bad example in your church. But can you bring it up scripturally? So when you can defend your case and saying it's sin. Well, it's a problem. You know, it's a bad witness. You know, you're trying to share the gospel with someone over a beer. You know, you, it's just a bad witness. Uh, all right, fine. But scripturally, can you make a case for what you said, that it's sin? And, and then I finally, out of arguments and, 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 you know, feeling that, you know, need to vindicate myself, I said, you know what? It's just bad for you. God wouldn't want you to do something that's bad for you. And he said, what about mayonnaise? And as he said it, I had a a spatula full of mayonnaise in my hand and a roll in the other. And I was silenced. Because I couldn't make an argument that mayonnaise was good for you, you know. And then I began to think, what about mayonnaise? And that quickly turned into, what about exercise? I mean, yeah, it's got health benefits, but certain types aren't good for you. What about the people that I am around during my workday and the language that they're spewing forth out of their mouth that's penetrating my holy ears, you know? That's bad for me. And all of a sudden, in a moment's time, I was constructing the Mishnah and the Talmud in my mind of what's acceptable for a Christian's behavior. And I don't know if it was that day. I think it was, but it might have been sometime in the next couple days. The Lord turned me to the book of Galatians, and I knew what Galatians was about, and I thought to myself, you know, I think it was God, but I thought to myself, I'm going to read Galatians. And I sat down and I began to read the book of Galatians. And I began to point by point, uncover Paul's argument for, do- for the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. And do you know what God spoke to me as I read the book of Galatians? No lie, I'm not making this up. He whispered very clearly in my ear. He said, Nick, you are a big, fat Pharisee. And I received it. And I said, yeah, I am. And from that point, I began to let go of my performance-based Christianity. I began to trust in Jesus Christ as my righteousness completely. That God was pleased with me, not because of what I was doing in the reformations of my behavior, but because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And that his wrath was completely satisfied. I was now the friend of God because of what Jesus Christ did for me. And I began to realize for myself the meaning of the grace of Jesus Christ. That if salvation comes by the works of the law and by my adhering to codes and keeping certain behaviors, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. He did not need to go to the cross if I was able to save myself or even get it right the second time. And I realized for the first time that when Jesus Christ saved my soul, he was not giving me a second chance. 
And he was not even giving me an unlimited amount of chances. Neither of those things were true. It was not a second chance. It was not a book full of forgiveness coupons. That you could just present these anytime you want. And you can have a fresh start every day. It was neither of those things. Neither one of those things were true. That that's not what salvation by grace is. Salvation by grace is that God has completely removed the believer from the covenant of the law and placed him in the category of salvation. That the believer in Christ is no longer under the law. Now listen, Romans chapter 5 verse 13 says this. It says that sin is not imputed when there is no law. That means it is impossible for sin to be laid to the account of the believer because you are not under the covenant of the law. It is a completely different covenant. It is completely separate. There's no mixing of the two. There's no take the parts of this that are, you know, seem right and the parts of this and we'll make this new thing. It is the new covenant in Jesus Christ. It is not of the law at all. And so therefore, we are saved by grace through faith. That faith in Jesus Christ as my righteousness is my salvation. That my righteousness is not something that is even in my control, but rather my righteousness is already in heaven. It is seated at the right hand of the Father. My righteousness is Jesus Christ. Now, I began to experience the joy of salvation. That he is pleased with me. That he's not my enemy and that I'm not even his problem child. You ever feel like that? Like you're God's problem child? Like, yeah, he loves me, but I'm his problem child. You know, he's always, you know, I'm a source of perpetual disappointment to him and all the rest, you know. I also realized at that time that God had been blessing my life. There was a, a multitude of blessings and that I was missing out on those things because I was too busy trying to live up to my own standard. I was so busy on trying to clear the next hurdle of holiness that I was missing out on all the good things that God was doing in my life while I was just passing right by him. There was even one time I remember very vividly, I was out in Southern California, the only time I've ever been there, and I was at the Marietta Hot Springs. And and I'd been on a mission trip in the Philippines, and someone had paid my way completely for me to go. And I remember that night having an argument with God and saying, God, why am I missing out on on your blessing? Why, Why is it that I'm constantly frustrated and beat down? And why am I missing out? Why won't you bless me? And I remember I was walking and audibly having this argument with God. And I was so blind to the grace of God in the new covenant that I couldn't open my eyes to the fact that God had paid my way for me to be in Southern California at the hot springs in the middle of winter. It was a huge blessing. And I couldn't even enjoy it because I was so busy working for God, trying to please him. He had been blessing my life. He was doing incredible things. And I was missing out because I was struggling under the weight of condemnation that comes from trying to live up to the law. I began to relax in my Christian experience and enjoy Jesus Christ. Enjoy my relationship with God. Can you imagine all the people in the world that are hungry to enjoy a relationship with God and it's been freely paid for for us. We ask, well, what did you do? Did you go out and buy a sixer? You know, go get a six pack. Hey, I'm free now. I'm not under the law. It isn't sin. I can do this. No, you know what happened is that I realized 
that it wasn't a behavioral reformation that God desired of me, but I realized that what was happening is that God was rewiring me from the inside. He was changing those desires. He was reworking the way I think and the way I tick and the way my body operates and that those things were no longer a desire to me. It wasn't that I can't do this because I'm saved. It was he's so alive and so real and so fulfilling that I don't need those other things. Those things are all whatever. And what happened is that I, I, I was no longer fighting for victory in my Christian experience, but now I was fighting from victory. And that changed the battle completely. That my righteousness and my pleasing to God is not dependent. It's already secure. And somehow that is the power that gives the believer victory over those things that hold them. This is what Galatians has meant to Christians since the day that the Apostle Paul wrote it. Not just to the early church in those times, and not just to the reformers, and not just to me, but to every person who has struggled under the weight of the law, who has felt that burden of trying to please God and knowing internally that it's just never quite enough. And they've come to that place of just believing and trusting in Christ. That's what Galatians has meant. Galatians shows to us the meaning of the riches of the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it breaks down practically into three sections if you're taking notes and ready to dive in. Chapters 1 and 2 give to us Paul's experience of grace. He gives us his own experience of grace in chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 3 and 4 is Paul's doctrine of grace as he explains to us how this is from the Old Testament. And then chapters 5 and 6 are the application of grace to the receiver, to you and me, the application of grace. And so we begin Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. From the earliest of New Testament times and even through to the present day, the question of spiritual authority has always been an issue. They came to John the Baptist and they said, who Or by what authority do you baptize? And they wanted to know, who is it that has sanctioned this ministry in the desert that you are enacting upon out here? To Jesus they came and they said, by what authority do you do these things? Who sanctioned this? Who's the ordaining council or the seminary board that signed your papers? Where do you get the authority to do the things that you're doing? For Paul, it was a constant struggle of who sanctioned this? Where is your authority? Who allows this? Where is it? Even to the present day, people will ask and say, who are you under? Where is your ordination? Or what's your theological degree? Or what qualifies you to preach? They'll ask. Well, here, Paul tells us very clearly what he was. He says, an apostle. And then right after it, before they even have a chance to ask, he says, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. Paul comes right out and he says, I was not sent to represent man, 
or a movement that was started by men, and I wasn't sent by a man to do what he is doing. But rather, Paul goes right to the very source of his authority. He says, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul immediately calls to himself the highest authority in all of the universe as the vindication for his ministry. It isn't the ordaining council of those that are in Jerusalem. I was not sent by the 12 or the 11 apostles that were there before me in Jerusalem that started this movement. It isn't Barnabas who kind of got this group of people together in Antioch when this movement first began. He says, it's not of men, it's not by man, but I am an apostle given authority by God the Father and by Jesus Christ to do what I am doing. Now that is very significant to us. Why? Because the people that were coming from Jerusalem, the Judaizers that were polluting the gospel of Christ in the Galatian region, the first thing that they would do when they would come is that they would present their authoritative documents. That they would come and demonstrate their degrees and boast of who they studied under and what, you know, order they were of. I am of the Pharisees. And I'm sanctioned by the order of the Pharisees to come here and to give this message that is signed and sealed from them. I am of the Sadducees. Or I am from the high priest. And this letter here has his seal and his authority upon it. And they would come with their ornate robes and and, and their papers and their piety and all that they had. And they would bring to them or bring with them the authority by which they were saying the things that they were saying. But at best... These men that were coming from Jerusalem could only say, I am sent by men, and it's of men. Because it was coming from the religious system that was established there in Jerusalem. Paul was there, and he was saying, listen, I was not sent by man. I wasn't ordained by man. I'm not sanctioned by man, but I have my authority. It comes from God the Father and from His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is the highest authority that anyone can plead. Beware when someone's authority stands in where they've studied or who they've studied under or what university they can boast their credentials in or in their title or in their degree. To the Corinthians, Paul the Apostle would write, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, For I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but, listen, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. To the Corinthians later on, Paul would talk about a group of Judaizers that had come to them seeking to underscore, undercut his authority or Paul's Paul's gospel. And Paul was warning them about the Judaizers that was coming and he reminded the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.20 and he says, remember that the kingdom of God is not in word. It's not by what people say or what is seen on the outward or the presentation that is made that can be seen with the eyes. But he says that the kingdom of God is in power. 
And that is what Paul's vindication was for his ministry. Though he didn't, he could have cited that he was approved by the apostles in Jerusalem, that he had been given the right hand of fellowship, that they had approved his message. He could have brought all of that to the table, but he leaves it all behind because he says, listen, the, the power, the weight behind my ministry is that God is backing it up. That God is using me and that fruit is being born through my ministry. And don't forget, you are the byproduct of God's power working in my life. The ordination that comes from men, I'm sorry to say it, but it is altogether worthless. Because unless God is giving someone authority and empowering someone to perform ministry in his name, they could have all of the degrees under the sun and it will be absolutely fruitless. But you can take someone from the backwoods of Indiana who never went to school a day in his life, who can barely read and write but has an anointing of the Spirit of God and God can move powerfully through that person. And souls can be saved and hearts can be fed and people can grow and the ministry of the kingdom of God can move forward as God the Father and Jesus Christ give authority to a person because they simply love him and are surrendered to his call. Paul says that it's not of men, it's not by men, but it's by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And he says, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. So again, it's not written to one church, to one city, but rather to the churches, plural, that are in the region. And then he says, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace in the Greek, it's the word charis. And it's the traditional Greek greeting. When two Greeks would meet each other, you know, we kind of say, what's up or Hey, or whatever, you know, we have our American thing. In the Greek culture, they would say karas, which means grace. It was the typical Greek greeting. Peace was the typical Hebrew greeting, shalom. It still is to this day. I remember I was in Brooklyn a couple years ago in the Hasidic neighborhood waiting for a delivery, and I was there for several hours, and these, you know, very ornately dressed Hasidic Jews all day were passing by. And after a while, I rolled down the window, and I started saying to them, I'd say shalom. And then many of them would say back, shalom, shalom. And then one guy, I said, shalom. And he said, shalom, shalom, And he starts speaking the Hebrew to me. And I'm quickly like rolling up the window like, ah, uh, sorry, you know, don't, no speak a Hebrew, you know, or something, you know. <laughs> but the typical Hebrew greeting, shalom. And Paul brings those two things together and he gives them the greeting of the Greeks and of the Hebrews. He says, grace and peace from God our Father. Not only the uniting of greetings, but do you realize that those two things are the successive blessings of God in the life of his people? See, the first experience that a person has with God is to receive his grace. The free gift of salvation that was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. The acceptance of the gift because of the blood of Christ, the grace of God. And do you know that it isn't until you receive the grace of God that you can experience the peace of God? Once you've tasted the grace that God is no longer your enemy, that you are right with God, you have peace with God because of Jesus Christ our Lord, now you can experience the peace of God. And so Paul says grace, and he always does. It's always in that order in every greeting. Grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the grace of God, we experience the peace of God. 
who gave himself for our sins. That he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Now listen, do you realize the deal that he is offering? He is saying to you, essentially, he says, he gave himself for our sins. In other words, if you were kind of like, you know, going back in time to your, you know, middle school days when you were bartering with your friend about your lunch bag, you know, hey, I'll give you my Purple Saurus Rex for your Twix, you know, and you're making deals and you're bartering, we'll make a trade here. Here's Jesus and he's coming to us and he's saying, hey, listen, I got a deal for you. I'm going to give you myself. You give me your sin. We're like, I don't know. I don't know. And sadly, there are many people that just say, no. But when you really start to think about what that means, he gave himself in exchange for our sin. And the result of that is that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Now, that's, that's great because his intent for us, his desire, his will for our lives is that we might be delivered from this present evil world. There are basically two sections of time that are divided in the Bible. There is what Paul here calls this present evil world, this section of time that spans from the Garden of Eden until the second coming of Jesus Christ, this present evil world. Jesus openly declaring that Satan was the God of this world. Paul calling him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, this present evil age. But the other section of time that the New Testament speaks of in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 is the ages to come. So you have this present evil world and you have the ages to come. And if you put the two things together, you have Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So his death upon the cross, his giving himself for our sins, has made it so that he can pull us out of this present evil world and translate us into the ages to come, wherein forever we will be marveling at the exceeding greatness of his riches through his grace and the kindness that he has shown us through Jesus Christ. And it's a glorious truth on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's extremely frustrating. Because... Those two periods of time overlap. And this present evil world goes from the garden unto the rapture. But his deliverance of us goes from the cross until eternity. And you and I are kind of stuck in this middle area of misery, sort of, on the one hand, wherein we've been delivered from this present evil world. We are no longer in bondage to Satan. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. We have hope. We're headed for heaven. We're we're free. And so there's elation. There's joy. There's glory within us because we've been delivered. But yet, we're still waiting for that time when he will take us and for the ages to come, we'll be rejoicing in the glory of his kindness and his grace. And it's kind of like, you know, yeah, I was thinking this picture like when you're in school, you know, and, you, you know, the school day is there and, and you're getting out. 
And you have your pass, and you know, your, your parents are coming to pick you up. And so you've been delivered. You, know, you hand in the pass. I'm getting out early today. I've got, I'm going on vacation or something. And so you hand in your pass, and you're out. You're free. You've got your stuff. You're ready to go. But then you're in the foyer, and you're waiting for your mom to come pick you up. And you're in both the worst place on planet Earth and the best place at the same time because you know where you were and you're not there anymore in bondage to it and you know where you're going. And that's kind of the feeling of the Christian, isn't it, in the present day? Is that we've been delivered from this present evil world but we're waiting for the time when he will translate us into the kingdom of his son that in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding richness of his kindness towards us through the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Paul the Apostle phrased it this way to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23. He just had a way with words. It's King James. I'm sorry if you don't get it all, but he says, For the earnest expectation of the creature, that means the, come on, mom, hurry, I want to get out of here. The earnest expectation, like, please, waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors in pain together until now. And not only they, but we also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. And isn't that the feeling? You know, it's like we have this hope, we have this, this Spirit within us, we know what's coming, but yet we groan, we say, hurry, Lord, deliver me from the corruption of this flesh, deliver me from this present evil world, and bring me into that glorious future that you have purposed for me. Notice that it says there, it concludes in verse 4, according to the will of God in our Father. That this is the will of God. This is what God wants for our lives. This is his desire, is that we be with him in eternity. That he not leave us here. And then finally he says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul's introduction that he gives to the Galatians, and he's about to get right down to business as he picks up in verse 6, where we'll you know, you know, pick up our study next week and begin to look at the problem that was taking place and see how Paul begins to uncover you know, the, the drama there. You know, we kind of see these introductions, and for us it's kind of like, hurry up, get over it, you know, because we have all the letters. And they all kind of start with this introduction. So we're like, all right, Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, grace and peace, you know, the whole thing. But, but, but realize this, that this was the first letter that Paul ever wrote. And they're reading it for the first time. And to hear these glorious truths. For them, every word, a meditation, to look into it and say, Paul, an apostle, not by men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ. The reminder of the spiritual power he possessed when he was among them to realize what God was doing, what God had birthed in them, beginning to stir up in them again the life that comes through Jesus Christ. It was powerful to them. As we close and as the worship team comes, I just want to ask you the question, are you struggling tonight under the burden of the law? Are you still in that place wrestling, hoping that 
maybe somehow your actions or your life or your reformations or the changes, the New Year's resolutions, that somehow that is going to bring you into a favorable state. Listen, tonight Jesus Christ invites you to enjoy the grace of God that was purchased by his blood on the cross. You don't have to strive. Jesus said, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you, he said, shall find rest for your soul. The rest for your soul comes as you embrace the grace that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait until we dive into the doctrine and read through the explanation and hear the application. That right now you can let go of your efforts, take the ball out of your court, so to speak. You can simply believe. You can say, Jesus, you did it all. You paid it all. That my righteousness is not in my hand. It's not up to me. My righteousness is already in heaven. When I get there, it'll be waiting for me. My name is already in the book. And oh, the joy, the joy that will flood your soul, experiencing the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's the will of God. Jesus said, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. And he has done it. He's paid it all. As we stand tonight and sing this last song, I pray that from the depths of your heart, the joy of Christ would spring forth and that it would spill out of your life in the coming week and that you would know him in a real and living way. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.